this prayer of confession together. Hello, can you hear me? Hi, good morning. Today's reading is taken from two passages from the book of Revelations, starting on page 1234 of your church Bibles. So we're beginning at Revelations 2, verses 12 to 17, and then continuing at the start of chapter 3, 1 to 6. So that's page 1234 of your church Bibles. To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, These are the words of him who have the sharp double-edged swords. I know where you have lived, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. Yet you do not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are are some among you who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. Only, not only to the one who receives it. Continuing to chapter 3, next page. To the angel of church in Sardis write, These are the, are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of, the, of, of, the, of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds who have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will, and you will know at what time I will come to you. Uh, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white and will never blot out the name of that person for the book of life, but will acknowledge the name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them, let them, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that in the written word and through the spoken word, we may see the living word 
your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. From time to time, church buildings need to be carefully inspected to assess their state of repair. Failure to do that could store up serious problems for the future. But a church is really composed not of bricks, but of people in relationship with Jesus. And that relationship can grow stronger or weaker. So a spiritual health check is also something that we should do on a regular basis. And it's more crucial than any building survey. This morning, we continue looking at spiritual health checks that Jesus made on certain churches in New Testament times. A few weeks ago, we saw that the churches in Ephesus and Laodicea weren't in good shape. They needed to make changes if they were to recover. Last week, we found a completely different assessment of the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia, for Jesus gave them a clean bill of health. This week, the reports are mixed as our attention moves on to Pergamum and Sardis, the third and fifth churches on the route that this letter would follow. For each of these churches, we'll take an initial look at the city in which they were located and then see what Jesus had to say to them. We begin with Pergamum. If you want to follow along, it's page 1234 of the Church Bibles. It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia, which made it an important administrative centre. But it was also a significant religious centre with many pagan temples. Jesus referred to the city in stark terms when he said this to the church there. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Why did he say that? Well, the city had an imposing temple to Zeus, the king of the gods in Greek mythology. So we can see why the word throne might have been used. It was also famous for its temple to the Greek god of medicine, who was symbolized by a snake. So we can see where the reference to Satan may have come from. But above all, Pergamum had driven the growth of Caesar worship in that part of the Roman Empire. This was a major source of trouble for believers there because of civic pressure to take part in this worship and the potential consequences of failing to do so. So we can see why Jesus acknowledged the difficulties Christians faced in that city. One further feature of Pergamum was that Rome had given it the right of the sword. So the Roman proconsul there had the authority to impose and then to carry out the death penalty. 
That was a real threat to believers. Let's now look at what Jesus had to say to the church that lived there. We read, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. That's a reference to the vision recorded in chapter 1, which mentions such a sword coming out of the mouth of the risen Christ. It was a symbol of the power of God's word. The book of Genesis tells of how God's word brought creation into being in the first place. And the life of Jesus had shown how his word can bring healing and grace. But it can also bring judgment. And so we can see the relevance of this description of Jesus to the situation in Pergamon. The Roman ruler there might hold the power of the sword for now, but Jesus would have the last word. Let's read on. Jesus says to the church, You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. That's a reference to when the power of the sword had already been used against one of their number. Antipas would have been ordered to sprinkle incense on Caesar's altar and to declare that Caesar is Lord. But he was unwilling to do that and had paid for it with his life. Pergamum was indeed a challenging city in which to live as a Christian. But to its great credit, the church there had not buckled under this pressure. They had not renounced their faith. They had remained true to Jesus. So there was a lot indeed for Jesus to commend about this church. However, not everything was as it should be. We read, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual adultery, immorality. Back in the time of Moses, Balaam was employed by the king of Moab to bring harm to the people of Israel. His initial attempts to do this were thwarted. But then he came up with a scheme to undermine Israel's relationship with God. It involved Moabite women seducing Israelite men and then involving them in idol worship. And so, although the direct attempt to harm Israel had failed, the damage was then done through subversion. Jesus is warning the church in Pergamum that they are in danger of making a similar mistake. They'd weathered the direct attack on their faith through civic pressure and persecution, even when lives 
were at stake. But now they faced the more subtle challenge of being undermined from within. Jesus adds, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The word Nicolaitans is closely related to the name Balaam. So it refers to the same issue. Specifically, some church members had been arguing that Christians were free to join in with the city's idol feasts and sexual practices. The first letter to the Corinthians shows us the arguments that they would have used. That idols are meaningless, so idol feasts are nothing to worry about. And that God is only concerned with our spiritual life and not what we do with our bodies. So, where's the harm in these things, they would have said. But scripture teaches that when God draws people to himself, he calls them to a distinct lifestyle that honors him. The Bible calls this holiness. So, what did the church in Pergamum say in response to these members? It should have reminded them of the clear teaching of Jesus and his apostles. But no one spoke up. Jesus had a different response. For although the church had been in great health until now, this was the beginning of an infection that could cause them great harm. So he says, Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He then adds words of encouragement. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. That's another reference to the time of Moses, when God had provided manna for his people to eat in the wilderness. A day was coming, Jesus now said, when God would provide a heavenly banquet for his people. White stones were sometimes used as admission passes to special occasions. So these may refer to the same event. And their new name pointed to their new identity in Christ. These are indeed encouraging words at the end of his message to them. Let's now move on to the second part of our reading. The city of Sardis was at the junction of important trade routes, so it was a prosperous commercial centre. But it also had a reputation among Greek writers for moral laxity and stubborn complacency. The citadel there was built on a steep, rocky hill that should have made it impregnable. However, in earlier centuries, it had been captured, first by Cyrus the Persian, and later by Antiochus the Great. On each occasion, the fortress had been overcome by soldiers climbing up the steep hill and going over the wall to open the gates from the inside. 
But why had the alarm not been raised by the guards? For one very simple reason. They hadn't bothered to post any. Everyone was fast asleep. Complacency kept leading to their downfall. So much for the city. What about the church there? Jesus usually has something positive to say. However, in the case of Sardis, the only thing that appeared to be good about the church was its reputation. And even that was undeserved. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. He continues, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. They were to wake up in the sense of being watchful. Like the city in which they lived, they'd become utterly lax and complacent. They'd taken life easy and were in danger. They'd need to take action if they were to survive as a church. Jesus says that their deeds were incomplete. They'd failed to follow through on their commitment to him. Theirs was a superficial discipleship that lacked any clear witness or distinct lifestyle. Just as their city's past glories had been diminished through complacency, so their relationship with Jesus had withered through neglect. Those are the things that Jesus said about this church. But also significant is what he didn't say about them. In other messages, Jesus mentioned the opposition a church had endured and commended them for their perseverance, but not in the case of Sardis. And there's a connection between their incomplete discipleship and the absence of persecution. For they were keeping their heads down to avoid hardship. They'd accommodated themselves to the demands of their pagan community. They'd fitted in with its values and gone along with things that were contrary to Christian teaching. If what we saw in Pergamum was the start of an infection, then what we see in Sardis is the result of its spread. The reaction of the city to the church was polite. What objection could anyone possibly have to what they stood for when it was so similar to the society in which they lived? Their Christianity was no more than a label. Nobody thought they were worth opposing. But Jesus had a different reaction. He said, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Those words would have come as a shock 
to that church. They thought they were in great shape. But they hadn't bothered to do a spiritual health check. They needed to recall the gospel message they'd first received and change from being nominal Christians to committed followers of Jesus. That would make life more challenging for them in such an unsympathetic culture. But that was what he was calling them to do. And the sevenfold spirit of God whom Jesus had mentioned at the start of his message would help them to live for him. He then offers words of encouragement. Yet, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Those who truly followed Jesus would be given white robes and he would speak up for them before his Father in heaven. That's a reminder of something Jesus had said to his disciples. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. There's no firmer ground of assurance than knowing that Jesus will speak up for us before God. He also says that the names of true believers are indelibly written in the book of life. The church membership book in Sardis may have contained many names, but what really matters is being named in the book of life. Revelation speaks about two types of book that will be opened at the end of time. There will be books of judgment which record how each person has lived. On that basis, we would all be condemned. But there is also the book of life which lists those who have been saved by the Lamb, by Jesus. Being named in this book was the gift that Jesus offered to those who truly follow him. So, those were the messages sent to the churches in Pergamon and Sardis. But what should we take away from them? The underlying issue concerns how we respond to Jesus' death for us on the cross. Paul wrote this in his letter to the Romans. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. The Christians in Pergamum had been faithful to Jesus even in the face of deadly persecution. They hadn't let external pressures squeeze them 
into society's mold. But they were in danger of allowing some of their number to do so from within. And as with the virus, if they weren't careful, the infection would spread through the church. Indeed, that's what had already happened in the church in Sardis. For while those who wanted to behave like the rest of society were a small minority of the church in Pergamum, they were the majority in Sardis. Jesus simply wasn't central to their lives. One of the earliest confessions of faith used by Christians was to say, Jesus is Lord. That simple statement has profound consequences. For Christians in New Testament times, it meant that they should not take part in idol worship or the sexual practices of their society. Idolatry today might include issues like materialism or career ambition or social recognition or sex. For believers, the call is still to put Jesus unequivocally first in every aspect of our lives. The challenges of being faithful to Jesus today are really not that different from New Testament times. This morning, we've read about spiritual health checks on two different churches. One was thriving, but had the beginning of an infection that mustn't be allowed to develop. The other had allowed that infection to spread and now required radical treatment. What about us? When did we last take time for a spiritual health check, either individually or collectively? Are we worshipping Jesus in how we live? As we reflect on these messages, let's ask God to show us what we need to change. As Jesus said, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.